0: produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better understanding about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap so the reconciliation process in Canada can grow. Today's guest is Carolyn Crawley. Carolyn is a woman who cares deeply about the land. She is of Mi'kmaq, Black and Irish ancestry and is from the East Coast, known today as Nova Scotia. She is dedicated to social and environmental justice and supporting Indigenous-led community work related to food sovereignty and food security. Carolyn lives in Tkaronto, which is Mohawk for where there are trees standing in the water. Carolyn is a certified forest therapy guide and through her work leads in person and and virtual forest therapy walks, as well as facilitates webinars and retreats. Carolyn is a member of the Indigenous Land Stewardship Circle, which consists of a circle of elders, knowledge keepers, community members, and leaders who have come together around a shared commitment to heal and protect Indigenous lands and community in Tacarontos High Park. has been threatened by the administration of herbicides and prescribed burns without regard for the impact on the larger ecosystem, threatening the preservation of such a significant and historical space. Carolyn has also worked with one of Toronto's largest food security organizations for the past decade. She built school food gardens and developed curriculum-linked workshops for grades K-12 through across the GTA. As Indigenous food access manager. Carolyn worked with Indigenous community members within the city of Toronto and with Cree communities along the James Bay area, which led to her role as co-producer of an upcoming documentary called Reckoning with the Wendigo. Carolyn is the founder of Emsid Nokmak, which translates as All My Relations in Mi'kmaq. In her work, Carolyn guides people to be out on the land, as she is passionate about reconnecting people with the land, waters, and all beings. Carolyn leads workshops that support the development and strengthening of healthy, reciprocal relationships based upon Indigenous knowledges that decolonize existing interactions with the land, with each other, and with ourselves. Carolyn is also a storyteller, a Kairos Blanket exercise facilitator, a holistic nutritionist and has worked as a child and youth worker for more than 20 years. She applies all her knowledge into all of her current work, and we are so grateful to have her on the podcast today.
1: Hello and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Carolyn Crawley. Good day, Carolyn. How are you today?
2: Hello, Gordon. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm really appreciating it. the sun shining brightly here where I'm at and, you know, just really appreciating the songs of the birds as I'm sitting here uh, with you today.
1: Maybe we can start by uh, you talking a bit about who you are, like where you come from, including your family background, like where you grew up and your cultural identity. Just talk a little bit about your, yourself.
2: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I am originally from uh, Mi'kma'ki territory, so the east coast, unceded territory. I was born in Halifax, and so my mom is Mi'kmaq. She also has African ancestry, and I also have some Irish ancestry as well. And so I didn't grow up with my cultural teachings, but um, my mother and um, my aunties and my uncles, thankfully, they grew up with at least the cultural foods. And so my grandfather was a hunter, but he also was a farmer. And my grandmother knew the medicines of the land. So I've heard, I've been blessed with so many stories since a young child about my grandmother, you know, saving my grandfather's life from diphtheria, you know, by harvesting some bark from some trees and making medicines for teas and getting him to sweat it out. And um, because at that time they didn't have access to hospitals or, or anything and there wasn't anyone in the community that was close to them that could support them. You know, so my grandmother was that person who, who knew those, those, those medicines of the land. And also my mom's, they would harvest, you know, blueberries every season and, you know, and grew up on those cultural foods such as eel and rabbit and other foods. So I didn't grow up in Nova Scotia. I moved here when I was a young child and Moved up into Scarborough area, so I see it Toronto is my home now, but I still feel deeply connected to out East, where most of my family is still located.
1: oh okay, so you're uh, you're in Toronto. you're not in uh, Nova Scotia right now? No, no. Okay. One of your jobs is a certified forest therapy guide and mentor and trainer. This sounds interesting. Tell us a bit about what this entails.
2: Yeah, so since a young child, I've always been deeply connected with the earth. You know, that's something that was really taught to me uh, from a very young age by my mother and my family. You know, that importance of being kind and taking care of the earth, right? You know, that was one of those teachings that was a part of my life. And growing up, I had this deep relationship with the earth. And I can remember a time where I was growing up in Scarborough everywhere was forested areas and as a kid we had forks out in the woods right across the street from where I lived and we would just spend like all day out there and we even had like which it a initiation process where you had to stand beside a wasp nest before you could enter our fort and everything like that and I remember one day you know, and this is probably when I was maybe around 10 years old or a little younger, that there was these huge fences that had been erected and we couldn't get access into the forest um, from where we usually would go. And, you know, as a child, I really didn't understand what was going on. We couldn't see what was happening. And also the concept of time is so different as a child. So I'm not sure how long those fences were up. But I remember when they came down and that shock because when those fences came down, the forest was gone. They pretty much had cleared down all those trees and they had put a baseball diamond and a community center up, which was quite ironic because we were already gathering there and we didn't need those structures in order to gather together and to connect with one another. And so I remember still going to that place because there was a spot where I would sit by the creek on the earth and now there were benches everywhere. And so I purposely would still sit on the earth and I felt this immense sense of grief and I didn't understand it, you know, as a child, I couldn't comprehend it. And I would close my eyes and imagine that the forest was still there surrounding me. And I think that really sort of stayed with me because as a youth, you know, I became distracted with other things, but I still had that deep connection, you know, that longing um, of connection that I had when I was younger um, with the earth. And I worked in mental health for 20 something years, and I saw how people were so far removed from the earth every day, just witnessing what was happening, you know, to the earth. and. I wanted to find a way to uh, be that bridge to connect people with the earth because it was so important. And at that time, I didn't understand, you know, really what it was that I was trying to do, but I was trying to get people out on the land in some way. And so, through my years of experience of being out on the land, and learning about the foods and medicines of the land and spending time with elders and knowledge carriers, my own sense of support that I received from the earth, I knew that I had to find a way to embed this in my day-to-day life and, and create an opportunity for people to experience it as well. And so I would say that it was about, oh, seven years ago, maybe, I was kind of looking into eco-grief or eco-therapy or, you know, these fancy new words, right? (laughs) Um, That are really just fancy new words of ways of being in relationship, you know, from all of our Indigenous teachings from coast to coast to coast. And what I came across was this website about forest therapy and this practice really has been inspired by the practice known as Shinden Yoku, which comes from Japan, which translates to forest bathing. And it's all about being supported by the forest. And uh, it's really about supporting wellness while being immersed in a forest.
1: Right.
2: And the practice of forest therapy, the guide is literally opening the door and the forest is the therapist. So it's about leading walks to people for people to slow down to connect through their senses and to be in the present moment. And, you know, there's an offering of invitations. So I just create some suggestions for people to experience and explore in whatever way that feels comfortable for them. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, this is also an ancient practice, right? It's just a fancy new word for something that people, all of our ancestors and people still today, indigenous people that are still in that deep relationship all around the earth. So with that is about just kind of guiding people out on the land for a couple of hours. We don't necessarily go too far. It's really about being present and slowing down. And so that's been a real gift to witness what people have experienced through that. I remember, you know, inviting a group of people out on the land to go find a spot on the land and just to be there with all of their senses with no agenda. And one of the people in the group was a a gentleman in his older years who said he didn't really like insects, I guess you can say. And he didn't like sitting on the earth. When everybody came back from that experience, I was sitting on the earth waiting for people. And he came and he sat right down beside me. And it's an opportunity for people always after an invitation for people to share. Um, Because, you know, it's really about that connection, not only with the earth, but also our connection with ourselves and with each other, right? Through that process of storytelling. And he was the first person who wanted to share and he shared his experience and he was moved to tears and he was quite emotional. And he said that while he was sitting out on the land, he saw these feathers of a bird and this bird was, um, I guess, his mother's favorite bird. And so it reminded him of his mother who had passed a couple of years before and he felt her presence with him in that moment. And so he had a deep sense of gratitude for that experience. And so he was so thankful, you know, for what he received and was thanking me. And I said, it's not me, it's the forest, right? I just opened up that doorway for you to have the opportunity, but it's really the forest offers you know, the Earth, Mother Earth is offering whatever is needed for people in that time. So right. I know that was a bit of a long answer for <laughs>
1: No, that explains it really well. and It kind of uh, reminds me of a uh, cultural revival of Indigenous people, how they're heading back into the uh, environment more so now these days, you know, as a, mm. as a form of therapy, as a getting back to their roots, so to speak. yeah. This kind of like sounds of an eco therapy kind of thing. And it's wonderful. I think it's great. Yeah. And I think that uh, More and more people, especially even non-Indigenous people are are starting to think that way, starting to appreciate and the land more and, and the environment, care for the environment, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Is this your own business that you have or?
2: Well, I offer walks through my own business. Um, I don't offer trainings anymore for that program. That was through uh, a business that I was kind of contracted to do that work. And so since COVID uh, happened, a lot of things had shifted, right? Because those were in-person trainings. Right. So I'm no longer doing that, but I am sharing the work with other people in other kinds of ways, because it's really important, like, as you said, Gordon, you know it's important for people to remember that you know the earth has always been our healer, right? From the very beginning, you know whether the earth is offering all the medicines that are needed, you know, to heal our body, or whether the earth is offering all the foods, those nutrients, to in order to sustain our bodies, and also thinking about how the earth supports us in so many ways, emotionally and spiritually, um, mentally not just the physical aspects. I always like to bring in some of the modern science. And I say modern because sciences have existed amongst all of our nations, you know, since time immemorial. It might have looked a bit different, our sciences, right? It was through observation, right? And through relationship. But it's interesting that modern science has been able to measure that all the plants in the trees emit a chemical called phytoncides and phytoncides is a natural defense mechanism to prevent the trees or the plants from rotting or from attacking insects So they release this chemical and so modern science has been able to measure that when people inhale this chemical that it can actually increase our nk cells which is a type of white blood camp cell which actually supports our immune system. So, a lot of this research has been coming out of Japan and South Korea around this practice of Shindenyoku, um, because what they're doing there is they uh, have programs where, you know, people, if they're in hospital and there's a location of a park next to them, that people are able to walk on these forest therapy trails to be able to slow down and to be able to enhance their recovery. So through their studies, they even said that when people in hospitals have a view of nature or even an image of nature in their room, that they heal quicker than those who do not. Mm-hmm. But mean, all our ancestors, we all knew this. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Very interesting. Now, do you do this in the Toronto area?
2: Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I guide in the Toronto area. I've also done it online as well so i've done it where especially because of covid you know when people were isolated we couldn't gather together in person but it was important to find a way for people to experience this so i did it through a few different organizations where they hired me and offered it to the general public where people would call in through a zoom phone number and they would call in whether they were in their local park whether they were on a balcony In the backyard or front yard if they have the privilege of having one or even from a window right when we think about increasing accessibility and what i'm doing is i'm guiding them through an experience to connect to where they are in that moment, connecting through their senses so. I'm literally guiding them on a walk. And so they've got one earplug in their ear and one earplug out so they can be tuned into their surroundings. And I'm offering them those invitations for 15, 20 minutes. And then they come back online and there's that opportunity to share and so forth.
1: Very interesting. You're also a facilitator in the blanket exercise. Can you tell us about this? What is a blanket exercise?
2: Yeah, so... The Cairo's Blanket Exercise is a kind of an interactive experience for people who are non-Indigenous to experience and have an idea of just some of the things that have happened throughout history that have impacted Indigenous peoples. So the blankets are on the floor and they represent the land. And the participants that are there, so this is usually done for a lot of businesses, sometimes schools or faith organizations. And so the people are representing the Indigenous people. And people are handed out um, cards and scripts and so forth. And you're going through kind of like touching upon some things that have happened throughout the past 500 years. Throughout the hour and a half of the exercise, there's maybe myself, who's the narrator, who's usually a indigenous person. And then there's someone who's representing the European, who is someone who identifies as a settler. And we're going through a script and we're kind of going through what's happening. And so at times through this exercise, the blankets, which are representing the land, is getting smaller and smaller or being taken away. And then some people who have certain colored cards, you know, whether those cards are representing the impact of smallpox and tuberculosis and measles that have impacted community members, that they have to step outside of the session and they sit in the circle because they have now joined the ancestors. And so what happens is by the end of the exercise, You see only a couple of blankets left that are all crumpled up and small and only a few people um, that are remaining and everybody else is sitting in the circle representing the ancestors. So it gives a visual story kind of just, like I said, lightly touching upon some of the things that have happened throughout history. So touching upon the Indian act, residential schools, the sixties scoop, you know, talking about the Royal proclamation, Tara Nellis, all of these things that have happened, the reserve system and all of that until what's happening today, right? You know, talking about, you know, the challenges around government not acknowledging treaties or talking about how the government is in courts fighting compensation for Indigenous children, you know, so just thinking or just kind of talking about what's happening currently. As well, and then there's an opportunity afterwards where we conduct a talking circle, so people have an opportunity to share um, their thoughts and experiences and ask questions.
1: So this is like an education tool for uh, indigenous and non-indigenous people to know a bit about the history of indigenous people. Yes, yeah I don't really fully understand it, but uh, I, I get the I get the drift of it and uh, Sounds like something that would be good for, uh, like uh, teaching uh, non-indigenous groups, you know, uh, workers, employees, uh, mm-hmm. more sensitive toward the history of indigenous people. Yeah, I think it sounds like a, an excellent way to promote uh, the history of indigenous people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and because of COVID, now things have gone online, so it's a little bit different how they facilitate it online. But yeah. It, the reason why they're doing it is that it's about that process of reconciliation, right? Because it's so important that we don't wait for the government <laughs> to to act upon reconciliation because we can see what's happening with that um, and the problems with that. That people who are identifying as Canadians, who are settlers or newcomers, people who are non-Indigenous, that it's their responsibility to step into that as well. So... This is their one of their ways of that process of reconciliation.
1: What is the Indigenous Land Stewardship Circle and its purpose?
2: Yeah, so the Indigenous Land Stewardship Circle started just over two years ago. And it's a collective of people of different gender identities and ages. So we have people who identify as youth and people who are elders. and. We came together because of what was happening in High Park. So High Park is situated in the western part of the city of Takaranto. And High Park is known as a place that had many, many trails and marker trees. And and there's a an old village there, remnants of a village there. I can't remember whose village. But we came together because the park, has been doing prescribed burns for a number of years and they don't acknowledge or the city doesn't make any acknowledgement that this is a practice of indigenous peoples from all across Turtle Island. And there's no involvement of any indigenous community members as well. And so we came together to have that conversation about how do we ensure that there's more involvement. And relationship, and that the city is making an effort to build relationships with indigenous community members in regards to how they are managing, and I say managing in quotations, the park, because that's kind of how what they're doing. They're managing the park. There's no stewarding, there's no relationship per, per se. And we came together also because of the amount of glyphosates that have been sprayed on a lot of the the plants in the park. And so a lot of the Phragmites that are around the waterways, you know, that are taking over, that they use glyphosates to try to control those plants. They use glyphosates for other plants as well. But they're doing spot treatment. And so they've been spraying the park for 20 years. And, you know, we have great concerns because our collective is also a collective of people who are Indigenous um, and also non-Indigenous people who identify as settlers. And we have a great concern because we're saying that from teachings from all of our nations, that we know that there's going to be an impact of that, those chemicals upon those plants. That it's not just the plant that they're dealing with, that it's going to impact all the beings, the waterways, the beings that live in the waters, the trees, the animals, and so forth. So we came together to try to find alternatives to be with these beings in these relationships. So, And then also to create an awareness for people about what's happening on that land that's known today as High Park. So it's been a challenging process with the city because the city is really kind of thinks in silos. So it doesn't look at a holistic perspective as far as relationship and just sees one being or one thing you know, separately. So when they're using the glyphosates, they're not thinking about the impact of all the other beings. They're only thinking about doing spot treatment to deal with a particular plant and that it has no effect on anybody else.
1: Glyphosate but, is what? Uh, is a chemical?
2: Yeah, so it's a herbicide. And so Let's this say. herbicide, there are lawsuits in the United States about this herbicide. People claim that it is a known carcinogenic. And there have been some places throughout Europe that have actually banned the use of this chemical as well. Right. So, yeah, so we gather together and we'll be building a garden or a caretaking part of the, the the land in there in the new season, right? In the springtime.
1: So this kind of leads into the second point. My next question, you mentioned gardens, you've been involved in building gardens for schools and developed Curriculum-linked workshops for students. How successful has this been?
2: Yeah, so when I was working at a food security organization, I was building food gardens for both elementary and secondary students and really kind of getting the students connect with the earth in a deeper, more meaningful way. And what we were noticing, a lot of the students could recognize a fruit or vegetable when it was being grown, right? So they couldn't recognize the plant. They could recognize the actual, the food. So finding a way to connect them with the earth and, rec- and have those, that knowledge was really important. And also when you're looking at shifting to healthier eating, that there's studies to show that when kids are involved in growing the food, they're more likely to eat the food, right? So the workshops that I was doing from kindergarten to grade 12 all connected to the the garden and healthy eating. So it was all about food literacy, how to prepare food. So we would be working in the garden and building those relationships and then bringing that food into the classroom and preparing that food. And sometimes the students would take that food home. And then there was also communal meals that we would have on a monthly basis where parents could come and join as well. One of the things that I did when we were working in that garden was talking about as I was working with students that are Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and I was talking about that relationship and that importance of reciprocity, you know, especially when we're harvesting from the land, whether it's an animal or a plant, because life is taken, right? And all life is sacred and all life has a purpose, right? So that importance of doing it in a good way. And so I was sharing about that with students and, and, you know, for me, when I'm harvesting, I'm offering that same, uh, right? You know, that tobacco But for the students, I was inviting them because I said, that's my way. But I invite you to find your own way, right? Because among those students weren't indigenous. Find your own way of giving back to express your gratitude for whatever it is that you're harvesting. So... You know, some of the students, especially with the younger ones, you'd hear them say thank you when they're picking the, the foods or, you know, they're giving them kisses or, or whatever it may be. And I remember one time I was on a rooftop garden and this was later kind of near the end of the year. So I've been working with the students in the school all year round. And I remember, that, like, you know, students came up, they were excited to be on the garden. And I just said, yeah, go ahead, go harvest. You know, didn't have to give them any instructions, you know, because they knew what plants to harvest. And I could hear someone say, hey, did you say thanks? And I turned around (laughs) and there's this boy with these beans in his hand and this other boy looking at him. And he's like, yeah, I said thanks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I thought, wow, that's so cute. So later I went up to the boy who asked the question. I said, hey. I heard you asking so-and-so if he said thanks. And he said, yeah, Carolyn, that was the first thing you taught us. And I thought, wow, you know, so for that to really sink in and for there to be that understanding of that importance of expressing that gratitude for what we're receiving from the earth really touched my heart.
1: Pretty awesome. It's kind of sounds like a project that we're working on and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, maybe we can get you to give us some some assistance or advice sometime in the future. We're doing a, we're working with students on a garden project mm. in the mm-hmm. Ottawa area. So you talk about in your bio being involved with a food security organization. I'm curious to what, what is a food security organization?
2: The food security, when we're thinking about security of food, is right, it's really ensuring that we have access to healthy, affordable foods that are culturally appropriate. And, you know, most people who are indigenous and black and people of color experience higher rates of food insecurity here, what's known as Canada. And the work of a food security organization is really finding ways to increase access to foods that are culturally appropriate and that are healthy. And... That can come through many different ways, whether it's through community gardens, through school food gardens, whether it's through hosting markets, so mobile markets in communities where there might be a food desert. And so food desert is a community where they have no access to any fresh produce or healthy foods. Maybe it's just kind of like convenience stores in their area and they have to travel a bit of a distance. So a mobile market would go into that community and those foods would have been maybe purchased from local farmers or from the food terminal. And they're sold pretty much at cost for people. And those food markets are generally in communities that are people experiencing low income, right? Because usually it's people who have low income that are experiencing these food deserts. So i guess that's kind of like a little bit about what a food security organization does there's a few in toronto here and so i was working with one and the work that i was doing was building school food gardens but also the past couple of years of that work i was the indigenous food access manager so i was working with a few of the cree communities along the james bay around increasing access to healthy produce in particular because the cost of foods is so high and so we were able to find ways to get funding to support the communities to get access uh, of produce from the south and they would travel up there through truck and train and plane and it would still be cheaper than what the northern store would charge and Over a period of time, the communities, um, you know, would host their markets and do this. But then they started even thinking about how do they even increase their own food security because they were getting this produce from the south. So some projects that were coming up in the community was really around increasing the growing of food in their own communities, looking at greenhouses up there and so forth. So that was a little bit about the work that I was doing. And then also I created a youth program called Teachings from the Land. And that was a program that went over five months. And that was really to connect youth, Indigenous and non-Indigenous youth, to learn from the land and to bring in elders and knowledge keepers and create opportunity for the youth to learn about the history of what's known today as Canada but also to learn about Indigenous foodways as well. And then the other part of the work that I did there was uh, I organized an Indigenous food sovereignty or Indigenous foodways gathering that was on um, Takaranto Islands. And that was a weekend gathering where there were different people that came from coast to coast, or well, not coast to coast, but from all uh, around the province of Ontario. So people up in the north came down to the south. To share the work that they're doing to increase food waste in their community, um, whether it was around country foods and so hunting and harvesting those um, those plants and animals from the land.
1: Yeah, you know food I mean? security is a is a is an issue that's uh, important to communities in in northern Canada, especially in the Arctic, where they don't get fresh produce and everything is so high. The cost of transporting mm-hmm. foods up. To the Arctic, and into northern 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 communities in the provinces as well. On our reserve in northern Manitoba, there is a once in a while a food a fruit truck will will show up and uh, will sit outside the uh, in, within the community somewhere, just park, and people will come there and buy fruits at a very very low cost. So mm-hmm. this is a very interesting uh, work that you're doing, yeah. and it's very beneficial to Indigenous people.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to happen, right? Because, you know, it's these systems, these colonial systems have been put into place that have really disconnected and removed people from traditional hunting grounds and and, and access to those foods and medicines. And so, yeah, the work that I'm doing now is really about supporting those traditional foodways, especially, right, so that there's more autonomy and less dependency on, you know, accessing foods from like grocery store or from the South, you know? Yeah.
1: There's a lot of um, people that eat food from the store, store-bought food, canned foods, that are not really good for you. And I think it contributes to the high rates of uh, illnesses amongst Indigenous people throughout Canada.
2: hmm
1: yeah. You're also involved as a co-producer of an upcoming documentary titled Reckoning with the Wendigo. Describe to us what this documentary is all about.
2: Yeah, so that documentary came about during our travels to the Cree communities up along the James Bay. And it was really trying to find a way to share their story of resiliency. Because oftentimes there's always these stories of hardship or disparity that are coming from Indigenous communities that are often exploited by non-Indigenous peoples. And so we really wanted to share a story that is focusing on the strengths, that resiliency, everything that people are doing in their lives to uh, increase food security or food sovereignty or increase Indigenous food waste. And so it does touch upon the challenges and the costs of foods and other products up in the North but also focusing on the solutions that the community members are coming up with.
1: Well, we'll certainly be looking forward to this production. I think it's going to be interesting to to see this. Toward the end of our podcast here, I have one more question for you. People often talk about today, the buzzword is reconciliation. And it seems to me that people have different thoughts about reconciliation different opinions on it. And uh, it's good. I think everybody should have their, I don't think there is one solution to reconciling Canada and making it a a better country for everyone to live in and to create a, you know, a greater understanding. And I think we're heading in that direction. And I think uh, we're just starting to take the steps, but it's going to, it's a long, it's a long journey. And how do you feel about this whole question of board reconciliation? What is your, what is your feelings on this and, and how we can make canada a better country to
2: live in yeah that's a, such a big question um i think even just looking at the language the work that i do through my business Ms. nokama is really kind of looking at language colonial language and really looking at is this the right language to be using so like if i google in the dictionary what is the meaning of reconciliation well its one definition comes up the restoration of friendly relations or the action of making one's view or belief compatible with another and so when i think about the friendly relations i mean friendly relations between indigenous peoples and the state haven't existed for a very long time, for hundreds of years, you know, because when we think about what's happened throughout history and, but then I also think about reparations, right? The making of amends for a wrong one has done by paying money or to otherwise helping those who have been wronged or the action of repairing something. So I think like really the government needs to be repairing the relationship with indigenous peoples and Reconciliation is this word that just keeps going about. And I mean, when I think about it, I think that people cannot wait for the state or the government to act upon this word of reconciliation or reparations, whatever language to be used, because we can see that there's a lot of talk and very little action. And, you know, and that was just evident with Trudeau on, you know, the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day didn't attend any events, right? And was seen, you know, vacationing with his family. And yet, if he was to do that exact same thing for Remembrance Day, there would be a huge outcry, right, about it by non-Indigenous people, right? Saying, oh, how could you do such a thing? So I feel like the government has a very rotten foundation, in my opinion. I'm just going to be very frank here. It's built on colonialism and the oppression of Indigenous peoples, but also the oppression of the Black community as well. And when we're thinking about a house, it's impossible to build on a house that has a rotten foundation, right? Because eventually that house is just going to collapse. And so what really needs to be done is you got to build a new foundation, right? and a foundation that's strong, that's bringing all those pieces together in that good way. And I just don't see that happening with the systems and the state that's in place today. When I look at all the systems, whether it's our food system, the healthcare system, um, the education system, like all of these systems have been built. The policing system, when I think of the RCMP and the creation of RCMP, all of these systems were based or created to create to divide and separate people and to oppress people. I think of even the park systems, right? Parks, Banff Park was created to displace the nations there from their traditional hunting um, grounds and from accessing foods and medicines. And that model was replicated all through across Turtle Island. So what I feel is that these systems that are in place are so broken and their foundation are rotten is such a big task to look at how are we going to dismantle that and build something anew. And the people that are in those positions, I would say, really need to do the work. They have to do individual work as well. Because when I'm looking at, you know, anything on the news and it's like in parliament, I see people yelling at each other, name-calling, interrupting each other. And that's just not a way of communication, a healthy communication from indigenous teachings from coast to coast to coast. It's just not the way you communicate with one another. And so these people are in this position of power who are supposedly representing all the people that are living and working in what's known today as Canada. So how can I have faith in them or trust in them to You know, be on that path and fulfill that path of reconciliation. I I have a really hard time with that. So, where I see that process of reconciliation is really amongst the people, right? That everybody has an individual and a collective responsibility to do this work, especially when we're thinking about people profiting off of Indigenous lands. People have a responsibility to have an awareness of. What is the shared history of what's known today as Canada? People have a responsibility to, you know, be aware that the issues that are facing Indigenous peoples are not Indigenous peoples' issues. They are issues of the state of Canada, right? That the state of Canada has a responsibility to do this, but also everybody here that's living here. So this is everybody's issue. You know, when we think about, not having access to clean drinking water, it's not just the community's issue. It's the issue of everybody living here, right? It's that holistic thinking. We're all interconnected in that way. I remember hearing this saying, and I can't remember from who, when one person's sick in the village, the whole village is sick, right? So you don't just treat that one person, you treat the whole village, right? right? Because there's that ripple effect of how that impacts everybody. And yeah. the importance of, you know, everybody having a healthy relationship with themselves, right? So that we can have healthy relationships with our family and, then, and healthy relationships with our community and with our nation and how that trickles outward. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but I think that people living here today who are not Indigenous have a responsibility to know the history, to know the issues that are impacting people, um, these colonial systems that are still in place, that are continuously oppressing people. And then they need to make some action around that, right? You know, one thing I always share with people when I do the blanket exercise is I ask people how many of them have had the privilege to go travel, um, you know, somewhere to a different country where there's a different language and, you know, people will put up their hands. And then I'll say, how many of you, you know, when you go to those countries, you know, maybe learn a few of the phrases, right? A greeting, thank you. Or maybe you've learned, you know, some of the politics or the history of the place. Or maybe experienced the food and, and other parts of the culture. And, you know, people put up their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I ask them, how many of them have experienced that where they live here in Canada? And, you know, maybe there's like a couple of people will put their hands up. And so there's a huge disconnect, uh, right, of what people have an understanding and a connection and relationship with Indigenous communities from coast to coast to coast. So it really starts with the individual, right, that that people have to start making that change and, and take on that responsibility to learn more and to do more and to stand with Indigenous peoples you know, to have an understanding that when people are standing to protect the waters and the lands, that they're not just doing it for them, they're doing it for all beings, right? Because we're all interconnected right. and people need to start shifting that, uh, yeah. those perspectives,
1: yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, <clears throat> you just touched on something about, uh, and I'm just going to make this brief, most First Nations uh, can't drink the water that's running through their communities. You know, at one time, uh, we drank the water right from the river. We used yeah. to haul water from the river. Now, now you drink that that water, and you're, you're gonna get really sick. And this, mm-hmm. like you said, this is all all across Canada. Like you know, yeah. we're poisoning our waters, like our lands and waters through pollution. Government should be controlling this stuff more. And, mm-hmm. uh, I want well, to. Can
2: for- I say one other thing too um, sure. about that reconciliation too? Yeah. One thing too, I, I think about land back and. You know, when I think about the state and the government, one thing that they could start doing is start returning all the crown land, <laughs> right, to the nations, to, to um, because there's like all the land in Canada. Eighty nine percent of the land is crown land that's owned by the state, yeah, and one right. way to show, you know, that reparation or that act of reconciliation is start to return those lands. And I put that in quotation marks in a sense, right? That you know, through their legal documents or whatever ways that that land is formally returned back to the nations whose territory it is. Right.
1: Well, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us. I've been talking to Carolyn Crawley. She's an excellent teacher. She's been involved in, in, in uh, so many positive areas that affect people in a positive manner and uh, land stewardship the uh, she facilitates the blanket exercise she's involved in forest therapy and uh, so many other wonderful things I think you're a great teacher you know and uh, you're a good representative of indigenous people and uh, and thank you very much on behalf of legacy the foundation I really appreciate and thank you for taking the time to do this with us
2: mm, thank you Gordon for the invitation to share with everyone today
1: Yes, and I'm wishing yes. everyone
2: that good health and that peace of mind and that good long life
1: yes, thank you miigwech
2: mm. lalala
0: Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation for more podcasts like this please visit our website at
2: legacyofhope.ca